0: welcome to the missing midwest podcast my name is liz and i am your host i was born raised and still live in the midwest my goal for this podcast is to highlight some of the stories of individuals that have gone missing some of the victims you may have heard of while others may be new to your ears as a heads up the people that are discussed in this podcast are considered innocent until proven guilty Today's case is the final episode of the three-part series covering Missing Boys from Des Moines, Iowa in the 1980s. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the last two episodes, please go back and listen to Missing John David Gosh and Missing Eugene Wade Martin before listening to this episode. As a reminder, if there is a case you want covered or if you want to view the source material for this episode, including photos... You can do so on my website, missingmidwest.com, and on my social media pages by searching Missing Midwest Podcast. Over the last two episodes, we had heard about two paper boys who went missing while out on their very early morning paper routes in Des Moines, Iowa. Johnny Gosh disappeared in 1982, and two years later, Jean Martin disappeared. Both boys' cases quickly grew cold. Today, we discuss yet another teenage boy who went missing in the 1980s from Des Moines while out walking by himself to a friend's house where he never showed up. All three cases are considered possible abductions. This is the missing case of Mark James Warren Allen. Mark Allen was born on May 13, 1972, in Duluth, Minnesota to Nancy and Mark Allen Sr., who were married just a few months prior to their son's birth on February 9th, 1972. Their marriage was not a blissful one. According to a custody summary on JustIA.com, the marriage involved drugs, quarrels, violence, and suicide threats. As a result, at just seven months old, baby Mark was sent to live with his grandmother in Connecticut, and she was eventually awarded custody until he was about four and a half years old. At that time, he was moved back to Des Moines to live with his mother, Nancy, until the age of 10. From there, he was sent to live with his father, also named Mark, for a few years in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In January of 1985, just a little over a year before his disappearance, Mark moved back to Des Moines to live with his mother and step-siblings at 1008 Southwest Emma Avenue. And what might be one of the most damning connections of these missing boys, Gene Martin, who was the boy we covered in our previous episode, disappeared only one mile away from where Mark had lived. Mark was described as an intelligent and good student, he was also considered to be a handful and described as having no common sense and bad behavior problems. Mark's mother stated in an article from the Des Moines Register, quote, "He was never disciplined when he was young, and when he was older, he had a lot of problems." End quote." As you can imagine, the problems Mark faced seemed to stem from the tough family life he had endured. But that didn't mean there wasn't genuine love in his household. On Saturday, March 29, 1986, Mark told his mom he was going to walk to his friend's house down the street and maybe watch a movie. On the way out the door of his home on Emma Avenue, he noticed the family was planning on having pizza for dinner and said, quote, save me some pizza, mom. I'll be hungry when I get home, end quote. That was the last time anyone would hear Mark's voice. From there, he walked out the door, and Nancy watched as he started walking down the sidewalk. When he got to some bushes, he turned around and waved at his mom, who was watching out the window, and she waved back. No credible sightings of Mark have ever been made since that moment. Unbeknownst to Nancy, Mark would never make it to his friend's house that day and Nancy was not aware that Mark did not come home that night. The next day was Easter Sunday, and when Nancy realized Mark was not at home, she initially assumed he had went to his grandmother's home. She called over to the grandma's house, who said Mark was not there. Nancy then opted to call around to some of Mark's friends' houses, all of whom had not seen or heard from him. That was when Nancy found out Mark never had showed up at his friend's house the night before. Nancy then immediately contacted the police to report her son missing. Upon calling the police, Nancy was advised that she must wait 48 hours to report her son missing. Now, keep in mind that Johnny Goshbill bill was passed into law just a few years earlier, which required that the police immediately start investigating when a minor is reported missing. It appears that from the get-go, his case was being treated as a runaway case. In an article from December 1988, Nancy said, I don't even know if he's a runaway or not. Usually at the holiday time, they at least call home. It's a nostalgic time of year, but he's never done that. Even after the 48 hours when Mark had not surfaced, the police were treating his case as a runaway and not as an abduction. I understand that not every child that is reported missing is taken against their will. However, this town with boys of this age had quite the reputation at this point for boys vanishing under very suspicious circumstances. The Des Moines Police Department should have been on high alert for these types of crimes. Yet, they really did nothing when it came to Mark's disappearance. They claimed that they had four detectives on the case since the spring of 1986. But what were their detectives doing exactly? Mark was initially listed under the missing category of juvenile, which an article from the Des Moines Register referred to juvenile as meaning quote usually runaways parental abduction who are taken by relatives end quote even trying to find any media reports regarding his disappearance is nearly impossible it is not clear if police canvassed the area for any clues spoke with any neighbors that may have seen mark walking on emma avenue that day or really spent any time trying to find him. Unlike the last two episodes of Johnny and Jean, there were not droves of people looking for Mark. Flyers were not printed. Big news stories were not put in the paper or on the local nightly news. On April 8th, 1986, which was about a week after Mark went missing... The Iowa Department of Public Safety said they had added 31 names to Iowa's list of missing people in the last week. At that time, they had a total of 36 adults and 128 juveniles listed as missing. Mark's name was the first on that list. Within a few months of Mark's disappearance, the police did check to see if Mark had showed up at his father's home in Minnesota or at his parental grandmother's home in Connecticut. No one had seen or heard from him since his disappearance. They said they had searched for Mark from, quote, Alaska to Florida to Connecticut, end quote. But by searching, I'm not sure if that means they went to investigate, or if they had just received possible sightings of Mark in those areas, or something else completely. Unfortunately, this is all the information I could find about Mark's disappearance. So few details were reported on him after his disappearance that we don't have a clear timeline of when he was last seen, or where his friend lived that he was going to visit on the night he vanished, or any sightings of him out walking that day. But if you guys thought this story ended with just these three attempted abductions... Unfortunately, we are so wrong. In my research, I was able to track down even more information about attempted abductions that were happening in the Des Moines area around the same time all three boys had gone missing. Next, we will cover briefly what had happened during those attempted abductions. The first reported unsuccessful attempted abduction took place on July 10, 1986. Jim Pollock was 15 years old at the time, and he was out delivering newspapers during a rainstorm on an early Thursday morning near the 500 block of 42nd Street when a man approached him from behind. That man grabbed Jim and pulled his arms behind him as he tried to escape. Jim was able to get free by kicking the abductor in his shins. He then ran home and called the police. Jim described the man as stocky and muscular and dressed in a camouflage poncho, but he was unable to see his face since the hood was pulled over his head. Jim also reported to the police that he had been chased six weeks prior in a separate incident, but he was unsure if it was the same man as the one from July 10th. The attempted abduction of Jim took place only a half mile from where Johnny Gosh was last seen. The next incident was from September, 1988, when a young boy was chased by a man while he was delivering papers in Indianola, Iowa. The boy was not named, and few details were provided. It appears he was between the ages of 10 and 13, and the incident took place about 20 miles outside of Des Moines. An exact location was not provided. The man who was chasing the young boy was reported as driving a white van. And just a few weeks after that second incident, on Tuesday, November 1st, 1988, just a few weeks after that second incident, on Tuesday, November 1st, 1988, another young newspaper carrier was chased. Mike Fackler, who was 10 years old at the time, was out delivering the Des Moines Register in his neighborhood of Clive, Iowa, which is about two miles north of where Johnny Gosh was last seen. Mike said a heavyset man wearing a white jogging suit jumped out of his car and began to chase him. Mike then ditched his bag and ran screaming towards his home when a neighbor pulled Mike inside his house and called the police. Police arrived at his home around 5.15 a.m. According to the Des Moines Register, the man who tried to kidnap Mike matched the same physical description as the man in the previous incident taking place in Indianola. In both cases, the abductor drove a white vehicle although it is called a car in Mike's case and a van in the Indianola case. Months later, on July 15, 1989, another carrier for the Des Moines Register was out delivering the papers alone when he noticed a white vehicle following him. This boy was 11 years old and remained unnamed. The vehicle that was following him was driving down a one-way street in the wrong direction. The man got out of the vehicle and began chasing this boy. The man was screaming profanities and threatening to stab this young boy if he did not get into his vehicle. He caught up to the boy and grabbed him by his sweatshirt, but the boy managed to wiggle out of his shirt and flee to a neighbor's home. That carrier told police his would be kidnapper was in his 40s, about six foot two, and had salt and pepper hair. He described the vehicle as a large, white car with a red vinyl top. In the final reported incident, 11-year-old Melissa Gale was another carrier for the Des Moines Register. While delivering newspapers at about 6.20 a.m. on September 14, 1989, an unknown man in a blue car pulled up to her and ordered her to get in the car. Melissa turned around and ran to her father, who was helping deliver papers only a short distance away. Melissa said the man was white in his late twenties to early thirties with large eyes and a large nose. He had a mole underneath his right eye and he drove a small dark blue car, possibly a Chevy Chevette with a beige colored blanket in the back seat. The site of this attempted abduction in the 3,500 block of floor drive is less than two miles from where Jean lived. Many people tie Johnny and Jean's cases together because there are very similar circumstances. The Clarion-Ledger reported, quote, Johnny and Jean both disappeared as they were about to start their Des Moines Register routes. You have to look at one case while you're looking at the other. Johnny was 12 and Jean 13. Each vanished as he was about to start his paper route. In both cases, it was dawn on a Sunday near Labor Day. Both boys had gone alone to pick up their papers at a corner drop-off point in their quiet residential neighborhoods, which are about eight miles apart. In each case, witnesses reported seeing the boy talking to a man. Both boys disappeared quickly. One minute they were there, the next they had vanished, leaving behind only their loads of undelivered papers." However, there are some distinct differences between those two cases. In Johnny's case, the man was described as being middle-aged with dark eyes, black hair, and a mustache. While in Jean's case, the description was frustratingly vague. A man, 30 to 40, medium build, medium length hair, clean shaven, and a neat appearance. A car was seen in the Johnny Gosh case, but none of the witnesses noticed one near the Jean Martin boy. Mark's disappearance is often also tied to Johnny and Jean's cases, based on his age, location, and gender. But with Mark's case, there are no known witnesses, and he was not out in the early morning hours or delivering newspapers when he vanished. All we know is that he is gone and has remained missing for nearly 35 years. At the time of Mark's disappearance, he was 13 years old, five feet tall, and 85 pounds. He is a Caucasian with brown hair and blue eyes with a small scar on top of his head. Mark's official spelling of his first name is M-A-R-C, but sometimes is reported as M-A-R-K. He was wearing a light blue t-shirt, blue denim shorts, White socks and gray shoes with velcro fastenings. Mark's mom, Nancy, said she hasn't heard much from the police over the years, but most recently she was contacted to submit DNA for comparison in the event a body is found. If you have any information concerning Mark, Jean, or Johnny's whereabouts, please contact the Des Moines Police Department at 515. Two eight three four eight zero zero. This episode concludes the three-part series of the missing Des Moines Boys. You can view photos of each of the boys, including age progressions, on my Instagram by searching Missing Midwest Podcast. Next week we will be back with a brand new case of a missing person from the Midwest. If you guys like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really helps me out. If you want a specific case covered, please submit the request under case submission on missingmidwest.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay safe out there.